when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's latest visit to Brussels and the ongoing rail strikes in the southeast of England. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, Whitehall editor James Blitz, and transport correspondent Robert Wright. Thank you all for joining. This week marks six months since Britain voted to leave the EU. We've had lots of signals from Theresa May's government about what kind of Brexit it would like, maybe out of the single market, maybe full controls on migration, maybe a bit in, a bit out of the customs union, but very little about the difficult compromises it will have to make when negotiations begin. Mrs May went to Brussels for another summit this week where EU leaders outlined the kind of process they would like to see, withdrawal, transition and then a quote new relationship that all seems pretty sensible but there's still a lot of confusion about where Britain is going to eventually end up. So George Park you've just hot-footed from the Eurostar coming back from this Brussels summit you've done many of these in your times as has Mr Blitz. Tell us how was it and was it significant at all? Well it was certainly uh, quite a it was billed as a one-day summit but it dragged on and on and on and uh, they were running at least three and a half hours behind schedule by the time it, it all wrapped up. And Brexit was a small part of the agenda, but I think an important one. Theresa May raised the subject herself. She hadn't been billed to raise it. And the point she was making was she wanted to see an early resolution of the question about foreign nationals or EU nationals living in the UK and the status of UK nationals living in the European Union. But as you say, more broadly, there seems to have been an acceptance at the summit and increasingly within British political circles that, as you say, we're going to we're looking towards a, a fairly quick divorce deal, possibly within 18 months, and then moving on to the more substantive issue, which is the future relationship, which could take a lot longer to settle. But it does seem if we take the first thing, withdrawal, that's all essentially about how much money we're going to have to pay. And Sky News, I believe, report that's looking at about £50 billion. And then that's tying up those. Then there's the transition point. It does seem that people want a transition deal, James, that I think that from both sides, some people in Theresa May's government and people in Brussels feel that will be the best thing. But how achievable is that? Well, I think an important thing that happened this week was I think you did see two ministers in the government moving towards saying we want to look at this transition deal. One was Philip Hammond, who I think has always been on side for that because that's what the city wants and he's the guardian of the city's interests. He said all thoughtful politicians would want to go down that road. And I think it was also then interesting that David Davis, Mm. in his own testimony to MPs, having looked quite recently as though he really was against it because a lot of hard Brexiters feel that they will get bogged down in in something that's unresolved. He was actually saying we could go down that road as well. So that is quite important for business. Whether it's achievable, we just don't know. We've heard some positive words from Michel Barnier last week, who's the chief commission negotiator on it. I think one of the important things that Davis has said is, if we're going to have a transition deal, it's got to be a deal that we have once we've worked out what 
the final deal would be like in FTA would be like free trade agreement would be like in broad terms the principles of it so you have to work out what you're transitioning to what he does not want is committing to a transitional deal if everything breaks down and we say okay well we'll just go into the European economic area for 10 years while we work out what's going on I think that's the thing that the hard Brexiters don't want and I think he's articulated that quite well I don't know if you agree George mm. This is what we saw in the leaked notes, George, wasn't it? That it said that Whitehall likes this idea, but ministers are sort of pushing back against an open-ended transitional deal. That's right. I think they want to, as James said, to, to agree what the final destination is. But the actual implementation of this transitional deal is difficult because what do you have in place? What are the terms that Britain is working under during that transitional period? Does it, for example, involve... Britain keeping its commitment to free movement of people? Yeah. Does Britain submit to the rulings of the European Court of Justice to adjudicate in any single market disputes? Because presumably we would stay part of the single market during the transitional deal. So we talk about this as if it's something that could be easily achieved. But actually the terms on which Britain goes into a transitional agreement or the terms that Theresa May might want to go into that transitional agreement, may not be acceptable to our European partners. And I think the immigration key is quite a point, it's a quite a key thing domestically, because I think after the point that we leave the EU, which one assume will be sort of April 2019 or something, Theresa May will be under huge pressure by then to have something done on migration, because the numbers are going to remain high, we assume, during that point. And if she doesn't, the right of her party and the Brexiters in the country will say, well, we voted to leave the EU to cut migration, you're now telling me mm. for the next five, ten years, however long the transition lasts, migration is going to stay the same. That would be very problematic for her. Well, I think so. And of course, the general election by that point will be only a year away. So will Theresa May be prepared to go to an election having promised that she will control free movement and having promised to take Britain out of the jurisdiction of the European Court with those two things in place? And if she insists on doing that, taking Britain out of free movement and the ECJ jurisdiction, then what goes in its place? Will the European Union be prepared to offer us some softer kind of transitional deal which doesn't involve either of those two things? Are they prepared to set up a brand new dispute arbitration court which isn't called the ECJ during that period? It seems highly unlikely. So that's when the rubber rarely hits the road and I think it's very hard for Theresa May to go into the election without having done something on free movement. Yes, I would agree with that. As you rightly say, the, the essential problem as you go into a transition is that if the EU says, OK, you can be in this transition but while, while we work out a final destination but there's got to be free movement, you've got to be under ECJ, that is going to be very difficult indeed, as you rightly say. So... It is complicated. The good news is, though, at least the British are talking about it more openly. At least that. And I think one needs to see now whether Theresa May herself is going to sort of talk more openly about the transition. Is it going to be part of the plan? Is it going to be mentioned explicitly in the plan that's published by David Davis in mm. February? And then is it an explicit mention in the notification letter? Those are the important things. I think they need to now. agree it very early on, because the only point of having this transitional deal is that it's there at least a year before Brexit takes place because otherwise people in the City of London and elsewhere will be making their investment decisions thinking it won't actually materialise. So it does need to be agreed. Mm. And as a point that Philip Hammond made this week, it does need to be made early on in the process. But I suppose, George, if we look back over the past six months since the leaver, obviously we had the summer was full of political upheaval with David Cameron leaving the Tory party leadership contest, Theresa May coming into Downing Street and having to put together a policy platform very quickly. So she only really got going in about sort of October time because of the way things panned out. But there's been a lot of frustration outside of 
Westminster about how little has been said, particularly in the city of London. And we've seen this week that the first signs of people saying, you know, we're not going to put up for this. We're going to have to make plans that Lloyds of London, the insurance mm. market, said we are looking at setting up an EU base, you know, and place like Dublin or what have are being talked about for that. So there is this sense that, you know, the motto Brexit means Brexit or red, white and blue Brexit or soft Brexit or hard Brexit or cliff edge Brexit, all the different things we've had. None of it actually really means anything whatsoever. We really don't have anything concrete about what this government wants. And I think how much longer is that going to last? You know, James mentioned this plan at the end of February. I don't think we should really get our hopes up for too much in that plan. No. Well, it's not just in the city of London that people are frustrated. You can sense the frustration building in the Treasury. And that's why Philip Hammond, despite the fact that Theresa May's put down an edict that ministers shouldn't give a running commentary, Philip Hammond is basically setting out the government's position on this while Theresa May ducks from the press. And incidentally, she didn't have a traditional press conference at the end of this summit when journalists might have been able to ask her a bit more about her European plan. So we've heard from Philip Hammond in the last few days, you know, the fact that we are prepared to pay into the European budget, that we want this transitional deal, that we don't want to revert to WTO rules, so-called hard landing when Brexit happens. So Philip Hammond is reflecting the frustration of the city by coming out and actually starting to map out the government's plan while Theresa May sits in her office. Now, there's a question, I think, which is, is Theresa May happy, Philip Hammond, to start sketching this out? Interestingly, Number 10 have not, to use the vernacular, slapped down Philip Hammond for speaking out in the way that they obviously have been doing with people like Boris Johnson and Liam Fox, two of the pro-Brexit ministers. So I think she's quietly happy for the fact that Philip Hammond's starting to map this out. And I think the crucial relationship in the British government, at least in terms of Brexit, is a triangular relationship between Philip Hammond, Theresa May, who do have a solid relationship, and David Davis, the Brexit minister, who I think has been moving much more in towards the orbit of Philip Hammond and the Treasury and splitting himself off from the Fox-Johnson axis. Because we've still got this split, James, within the cabinet of people of Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, and Liam Fox, the International Trade Secretary. And they want a kind of, they would not want a transition. They want a quick negotiations to leave and then just get on with it, which is what's seen as very dangerous by the city because it could cut us off from Europe and leave the economy, you know, floating astray for years as we try and negotiate that. And the fact that those three key people George mentioned are all coming around this withdrawal, transition, then the new relationship idea seems to suggest that that is probably what's going to happen. But there's still an awful amount of political blockage in Whitehall about this. You know, how confident do you feel about the process going smoothly? Well, not very confident. Nobody could be or feel very confident about it. I certainly agree with what's been said thus far. I think that Fox and Boris Johnson appear to have been somewhat diminished in recent days and weeks. Boris Johnson's been through a very bad phase in which he's been at loggerheads with Mrs May over Saudi Arabia. Fox is clearly not trusted. It's never been clear that the Department of International Trade should have been set up. So I think in a sense, they're having to shout louder because they're not being heard inside the corridors of Whitehall. And I think it's absolutely right that what you've seen is Hammond and Davis looking much more like they're singing from the same hymn sheet. And Davis, I think, has had to move. He's had mm. to move away from some rather rigid positions, especially vis-a-vis -vis the transitional deal, towards something that's closer to Hammond. Now, what are the things I would add to that? I think number one is, I still don't think that Theresa May looks like she's commanding things. I still think she looks as though she's buffeted around. She's doing remarkably little serious media, I think, for a prime minister. The fact that she didn't do the press conference at the end of the Brussels summit, her sound bites are very bland indeed. And I think when she comes back after 
the recess. I think she's got to show that she's more in command of the process rather than somebody who is really allowing this duumvirate of Hammond and David Davis to run things. I think that's mm. a real vulnerability for her at the mm. moment. And it's quite unfortunate, mm. George, that the main thing people will have seen from this summit this week was a two-minute video <laughs> from Sky News of Theresa May arriving and standing on her own and all the other European leaders are hugging and greeting each other and Theresa May just left standing shuffling her papers. Now, it's obviously been reported that she had many warm embraces mm. and conversations, but I think for a lot of people that little video just showed, well, this is the situation we're in. We're in our own on this and um, we're getting rather short shrift from other people in Europe. You're right, and it, the, the video was went viral on social media. Now, one thing I would say about Theresa May is that certainly at Westminster you meet plenty of ministers who are getting increasingly frustrated with the way they're cut out by the Prime Minister. They can't get to see her. She's got this war special advisors around her. She seems to be a sort of quite a remote figure and that came through in that video we saw at the summit. But we have to draw a distinction between what people like us and people in the Westminster Village think about that and what people in the wider world think. Some people outside the Westminster bubble would have looked at that video and would have been quite Brilliant. glad and thought, that yes. Theresa May wasn't hugging and kissing EU leaders. in the, UKIP uh, voters, certainly. And if you look at the opinion polls, Theresa yes. May is massively popular in parts of the country which the Tory party aren't normally able to reach, the North, the Midlands. And I think her position is potentially quite fragile because she doesn't have a huge body of support at Westminster, but she is sustained by the fact that she is popular in the country. And the support in the country is then reflected back through MPs at Westminster. I think the problem comes for Theresa May, looking ahead to 2017, is if she's suddenly hit by two or three crises at the same time, the Brexit talks start to go badly, she starts to lose votes in the House of Commons on the great repeal bill, her authority starts to be undermined because if that happens and the opinion polls turn, I think there could be a negative feedback loop which could under undermine her. I certainly agree with what you're saying. In terms of where the public mood is at the moment, I think that she is very well positioned in terms of looking like she wants to press ahead with Brexit. Mm. I don't think that she could be any less than that. That said... Two points. One, the strength of her position has a lot to do with Labour's strategic weakness. I mean, mm. Labour's poll ratings are historically unbelievably low. They're, they're testing the Michael mm. Foot levels in the early 1980s. So a stronger Labour Party would certainly put in, be putting her under a lot more pressure. I think the second thing, though, is as you stand back, she doesn't look as though she's really had either good strategy or good tactics in the six months period since she came to mm. uh, since the six months since the referendum and the five months since she was at number 10 I mean the way it, she should have done a number of things right at the outset she should have had a vote early on on article 50 and just, avoided all this supreme and avoid court all this, just yeah. grasp the nettle got on with it instead of which she's now open to a supreme court judgment which people like Oliver Letwood are still saying you know Hang on there. You don't know what might come out of that. All sorts of things. That's one problem. She should have balanced, secondly, her commitment to triggering Article 50 in the first three months of this year with some moves to try and appeal to the 48%. I think that is one of the things she just hasn't done. She is not a national leader. In particular, on the question of the rights of EU nationals to remain, I still think, even on her side... You know, strong conservative supporters, Fraser Nelson, those sorts of people are basically saying you should have made that commitment because you would be in a much stronger position now. Mm. So 
tactically she hasn't made a lot of mistakes mm. and then just very finally last word George I'm just going to say to you that obviously James has a lot of very good points there but Theresa May has got a very difficult situation to deal with here that it's some say it is impossible and she's going to be unable to balance those things so slightly in her defence this is uncharted territory nobody's triggered Article 50 before nobody's left the EU before and every Tory leader you know in recent memory has been destroyed by Europe essentially every Tory Prime Minister sorry so she might suffer the same fate as she might and I agree with James that she has made some mistakes and to be frank she hasn't really done very much in six months passed very little legislation the House of Commons is is virtually dead no legislation is coming forward we're still waiting for things like her industrial policy and regional policy she hasn't really done very much but I think the important thing about Theresa May in the last six months is just the fact that she's been there you know, she looks at a time of national crisis like a leader. Now, whether she turns out to be a leader, we'll probably find out a bit more in 2017. But just being there was probably enough for the last six months. Chaos and misery returned to Britain's railways this week with industrial action on the Southern Network. Two trade unions, ASLEF and the RMT, went on strike over the role of conductors opening and closing doors, and in particular the shift to driver-only operation on trains. 300,000 people, that's the equivalent population of Coventry, were stranded and neither the rail operators nor the unions appear ready to compromise and strike a deal to keep the railways running. So Robert Wright, you've obviously been reporting on this for the FT and seeing the plight of commuters who've been stuck mm. at stations across the southeast and in and around London. How significant has the disruption been and do you see any end to it in the near future? Well, what's been different this week is we've had a strike by ASLEF, the train drivers' union. The previous strikes were by RMT, the conductors' union, and the train operator Southern has been able to run about 60% of the normal services during the strikes by the RMT. The strikes by ASLEF, nothing was moving. Gatwick Express, another part of the same franchise, had to half its frequency as well. So this has been there has been enormous disruption where I live in South London. I was seeing huge numbers of people coming on buses, people who'd presumably normally be on Southern walking to the underground at Brixton. So it's it has been a pretty miserable week for anybody who was dependent on this very troubled operator. We've obviously had lots of strikes on the London underground and bits and bobs of the train network, but this really feels like the biggest in recent memory, I think, because of the coordinated action, as you said, between ASLEF and the RMT. Now, the RMT have been on strike before about this dispute. Essentially, they represent the conductors on the trains or guards, whatever you want to call them, and are saying that they need to be there because of safety concerns. Whereas Southern said, we've got these trains that don't need conductors, therefore we want to reallocate them, and I suppose that does I mean, eventually that might lead to job losses, but in the near future, it is, there's no job losses involved. The RMT say is all about safety, and that's and there's not actually much substance to that based on what I understand of the situation. Well, the difference that we're looking at here is you're looking at moving from a situation where a guard who is standing in the middle of the train is essentially poking his head at the door looking along the train trying to assess whether it's safe to close the doors and then making a decision based on that. They're looking to move to an arrangement where driver is sitting in a cab and has a bank of CCTV monitors. About four or six of, of them, yeah. Well, there'll, well, there'll be tw- 24 different images. Oh, wow. of, on, on a 12-car train, you'll have 24 images of all 24 sets of doors along a train. It seems to me, and I think it seems to be the case for a lot of the experts, who've looked, that the CCTV arrangement is inherently safer. But I should add one important thing that I think has perhaps not come out 
so far with this. I think a big part of the concern on the part of ASLEF is that their members are potentially taking on a much greater risk because one of the biggest ways that you could injure a passenger in Britain's very safe railways is to make a mistake closing the doors. There have been a couple of prosecutions of guards who've made mistakes and that have led, in one case, somebody's death, in other cases, to injuries. So there is, I think... A fundamental concern that they're taking on a risky activity. They're worried about that. But these driver-only operated trains have been on the UK railroads for about 30 years and they're generally accepted to be safe. Obviously you do get particular incidents but they're generally thought to be okay and the key reason for my understanding is that if the RMT controls the doors then that gives them greater power over in the rail network. If in their new roles, which they're going to come in from January if Southern gets its way they are going to be sort of on the train checking tickets and what have you, but they won't be essential to running the trains. So if the RMT do go on strike, so they can just keep the trains going with an inferior service, but still keep them running. And that obviously means a lot for the RMT's collective bargaining power. So if they lose this strike, then that means their ability to bring down the Southern Network over pay or working conditions or what have you is significantly affected. Yeah, well, this is a smash-up that's been coming for a long time. I remember when Sir Roy McNulty came out with the report on the rail industry in 2011 on efficiency, getting things to run better, he said wages have been too high, you need to move to driver-only operation. And I recall asking him at that time, I said, well, who's going to be the train operator that has this fight that is prepared to take on the unions over this? Well, we've now discovered that it's going to be Southern. It's under the unusual circumstances of this franchise being a rather unusual one. It's directly specified by the government. It's not a normal commercial franchise. Just on that point, it's, I think it's keen to clarify this, that it's currently operated by Govia Thameslink Railways, and this is a big, sprawling train franchise because it's involving so much infrastructure work, particularly around London Bridge, where they're building this new flyover thing for the trains coming in. It's very disruptive, which is meant to delay services, cancel services, and this franchise, which includes the Thameslink going through London and the Southern Network, probably is only going to exist for the length of this infrastructure work and will then get broken up at the other end. And that seems to have played into this as well. Yeah, the funny thing about this is actually it's about ultimately a good news story. The government Making is, the railways better, yeah, that's it's what it's a, meant it's to be spending, about. It's about spending £3.5 billion on enormously enhancing the capacity of the Thameslink Cross London Network, network that was put in place by British Rail in the 1990s on a shoestring. It never had enough capacity. It's always been overcrowded. So ultimately, there is a good news story that this is being done. You can absolutely ask the question whether it was wise of the Department for Transport to put into this franchise that already has so many challenges in front of it, the obligation to introduce driver-only operation. I mean, that now looks a pretty bold thing for them to have asked. The franchise went into this battle in an already fairly weakened state because it faced so many operational challenges, so there's definitely that question. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, ironically, there's a good news story here. The railway will end up being better in the end. Well, it's not a good news story for the thousands of people who've been stuck this week and uh, will not be very happy. So we've had those two strikes by the RMT and ASLEF, which has essentially closed down the Southern Network. Um, next week, we've got strikes by the RMTs. That's just the conductors. The drivers are going back to work in the week running up to Christmas. So that means a more skeletal service running on the Southern Network. And there's even more strikes planned in January. But the key thing is, from January the 1st, these new contracts will begin to be introduced. And that really marks the move towards the driver-only operation. The conductors get reassigned. So bit by bit, 
bit, the RMT is going to be undermined. So at some point in 2017, the RMT might want to go on strike in Southern, but it might not actually have any effect. So what do they want to achieve here? Because I can't really see how the RMT is going to be beat up, is going to win this. Well, I'm not entirely clear on this, I must say. And the key question is going to be how far Aslife continues to back them up. We've seen that Aslife has far more power in this situation and if they continue to stage lengthy strikes they're meant to be going on strike for five days a full working week from january the 9th which is going to be that's as left as left is meant to it so you're potentially going to have the whole southern network shut for the entire week starting january the 9th and that is going to be a huge thing for the people involved it's going to be a huge political issue and the pressure to get things solved is absolutely going to rack up if you have that five-day walkout coming. So I, I think it's absolutely going to become an even bigger issue for Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary, to try to get sorted out. And the irony in some ways is that it's probably pretty critical that he is not seen to be the one that's sorting it out. Exactly. And um, we'll just come on to Chris Grayling because, you know, he's come and taken, I say, a fairly abrasive approach towards the trans and to the train industry so far because this is ultimately a dispute between Govia Thameslink, which runs Southern, and the rail unions. Nothing really to do with the government. But Chris Grayling has certainly made himself a figurehead for this. Obviously, it's such a big and important thing. And I think some in the unions and the industry you think, well, maybe he would have been better just staying out of it and letting Govia Thameslink get on with it. But on the other hand, people want someone to blame and he's the transport secretary and there were protests outside the Department for Transport last night. There were protests in Victoria Station on Friday for people saying that he should go. Um, you know, how much responsibility does he and his department bear for this strike? This is a constant challenge with the, the privatised rail industry. It is ultimately specified by the government. The government continues to put considerable amounts of money into the industry and there is a question about how much ministers are on the hook for what happens in the railways, and, and we're absolutely seeing that in this situation. The Department for Transport took on much greater responsibility for the railways just over 10 years ago as a result of the 2004 rail review. They're now in charge of franchising. They've made some of the decisions about new trains and so on. And I think there would be a general consensus they've done quite a bad job of that. And So many problems with the franchising and the rail track into network rail, which still has many problems. Rail track into network rail was, was a previous era, but absolutely they've made a terrible mess of franchising. They've made a mess of ordering new trains. And there are definitely some questions about the way that the Govia Thameslink franchise was let. So they have an extremely spotty record and there is a very difficult line to tread between taking responsibility for something that you ultimately specified and letting the train operators do what they're good at which is which should be running trains so Chris Grayling is in an unenviable position here one could absolutely question whether he was wise to hint that there might be new anti-trade union legislation coming because if I were Asla for the RMT and I was wanting to get the most out of this and shore up support for my members, making it Tories want to take away your right to strike rather than about the specific issue of who closes train doors would serve me very well. So I'm not sure that his tactics have been a huge success this week. And it was very noticeable. I went to that demonstration at Victoria Station last night from where they marched the Department for Transport to demand his resignation. And it seemed to me, watching it, that the focus has become much more on Chris Grayling himself. They were shouting, Southern Rail, Grayling fail. Previously, the focus was much more on the operator. So I'm not sure his tactics are currently working that well. He could definitely be doing a better job of this, in my view. 
And then the final thing is, you know, some people have been calling this week as they often do for nationalisation of the railways, which is a trope that comes on every so often. Opinion polls seem to say that people think it might be quite a good idea. So this could either be taking the Southern franchise away from Govia Thamesink into a publicly owned franchise, which is what happened with the East Coast Railway after a couple of years ago, or it could be sucked into Transport for London. This is something that Boris Johnson, the former Conservative Mayor of London, and Sadiq Khan, the Labour Mayor of London, and both things should happen. Is there any merit to either of those suggestions? Well, I've been on here before saying that I think a lot of people are a bit confused about what the merits of nationalising the railways. I don't see how a nationalised operator would presumably still want to introduce driver-only operation. It's a sensible thing to do. And a nationalised operator would still be having the same fight. So I'm not sure how it solves this particular situation. The private train operators do not take an awful lot of money out of the system. They have they it's very t- slim profits. They, they typically have an operating profit margin of 3%. And Go Ahead Group, the majority owner of Govia, the, the company that runs the Thameslink franchise, announced yesterday that they were going to lose even more money than they expected on that franchise. So they are suffering the consequences of what's going on there. Similarly, should Transport for London take over a franchise that operates as far away as Portsmouth, all over the southeast of England. I don't particularly see a case for that. Transport for London's done some very good things with some neglected inner London rail services. I'm not sure they should really be operating such a huge, sprawling network. Well, good luck to our listeners who have to try and battle through all this in the next couple of weeks. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next week for the final installment of 2016 of FT Politics. Thank you very much for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.